0: You turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The passage upon which our teaching is based this morning it comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And let me remind us of what we are doing in the weeks leading up to and through Christmas. We're looking at the theme of Christmas hope. And we began the series on hope by looking at the fact of how God is made commitment. That commitment was to send his son to the world, to send everything right. That he is committed to restoring shalom. That when he created the world, he created the world to be basically the home for his realm, his rule, his kingdom. And he made his royal representative, originally Adam and Eve. To basically manage and take care of, to steward the earth on his behalf. And to basically take that realm and make it from the Garden of Eden and spread it out through the whole earth. But when the serpent came into the garden, and Adam listened to the word of the serpent rather than the word of God, you had newbie on your hands, insurrection, and a battle, a cosmic force, a battle of kingdoms, a battle of realms. Leading to the question, what would God do? Would he abandon his plan? We stayed committed to his original mission, his original plan, that earth would be the place of his realm and his kingdom, ruled by his royal representative, his image bearer. And we discovered he stayed committed to his plan so that that royal representative, one day being Jesus Christ, the seed, the promised seed, would come, and as the choir sang, the rose of Bethlehem, and would set everything right, and would set everything in right order. We looked last week at Psalm 96, how the Old Testament anticipates this promise, anticipates this hope. And now, from a couple different passages out of Luke's Gospel, we want to look at how the New Testament, and <coughs> the Gospel writers record for us the unfolding of that hope. So look with me, beginning at verse 5 of chapter 1, and it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiel. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the door at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For I am an old man; my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, "I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time." And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is how it works. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our heart to see the wondrous things recorded for us. In your word. That you would open the eyes of our heart. That we may know the hope to which you have called us. The glorious inheritance you have given us. In the saints. So Holy Spirit be now our teacher. In Jesus name. Amen. John the Baptist. Whose birth, whose conception is recorded for us here. Is the forerunner of hope. And Luke records for us how this hope is unfolded. In the lives of these two saints, Zechariah, the priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. First, let me give you a little background on our friend Luke, so we understand where he's coming from. Luke was a doctor. And what's the business of a doctor? The business of a doctor is to heal. And so Luke's first volume, Luke wrote two volumes for us in the New Testament. He wrote Luke, and then his second volume he wrote was Acts. He wrote it basically as a letter to his dear friend, Theophilus. He talks in the opening verses of his first volume, the Gospel of Luke. He talks about how many had been undertaking to write down and record for us. They were eyewitnesses. They were researching and writing down the things that happened. He said it seemed good to him as well to carefully research these things and to put them down so that Theophilus would have a sense of certainty in his faith. The Gospel of Luke is concerned to highlight the story of Jesus, the story of the Savior of the world not only to Jews, but particularly to Gentiles. His gospel carries with it a distinctively Gentile flavor. And one of the main aspects to this Gentile outlook is its humanity, its insistence that the gospel alone is the answer to the human condition, that there is no kind of person that the gospel cannot reach, no boundary it cannot cross. While his message is certainly not that everyone will be saved, but his message is that there is no boundary, no barrier that the gospel can't possibly overcome. So in other words, even though everyone won't be saved, certainly there is not anyone that it's possible for the gospel to not reach. The gospel is for people with real needs, real problems, real struggles, Who are going through real doubts and real turmoil in their life. This gospel is for people that the world would typically despise the poor, the marginalized, the outcast, the weak. And he begins his story, he begins his gospel with this story here for the parent. For someone who was completely helpless and hopeless. And he begins this gospel with a sequence of four incidents which lead up to the birth of Jesus, one taking place in <coughs> Jerusalem, another in Nazareth, and then two in an unnamed village in the hill country of Judea. And the story begins, think about it in its historical context. You have the close of the Old Testament history of Revelation and the close of the Old Testament canon with the book of Malachi, and then you have 400 years of basically silence. 400 years of, I oh, called Have you answered? Where are you? What are you doing? And then, all of a sudden, you have God speaking into the world. And Luke wants us to know about the announcement of the birth of Jesus' forerunner, the forerunner of hope. Why is he the forerunner of hope, and why is he important? Verse 15 says that he will be great and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we learn about this forerunner of hope, and what do we learn about the nature of hope that's unfolded? Of course, we learn basically three things. We learn how this hope is first of all unexpected; it is out of the box. Secondly, we learn how it's supernatural; it's out of this world. And thirdly, we learn how it's other-centered; it is out of the ordinary. Biblical hope is out of the box, out of this world, and out of the ordinary. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5, we're introduced, and it says simply, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abiah. and a wife, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What do we learn about it? Zechariah and Elizabeth? They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So far, the introduction is what I would call very in the box. Pretty straightforward. Luke is stressing for us the quality of their holiness, their godliness, their walk before the Lord. They are righteous, they're holy, their heritage is impeccable. Even Zechariah's name means God remembers. And the drama is introduced in verse 7 when it says, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now this is going to stretch our imaginations a little bit for us to comprehend just how significant the fact of Elizabeth's barrenness had to be, especially in that culture. I want you to try as best you can to enter into how helpless and hopeless she must have felt so you get the feeling of the out-of-the-box, out-of-this-world, unexpected nature of this hope. For see children, especially to that culture, we don't live in that culture, we have to kind of draw a bridge between the 2015 world and the world of the first century A.D. Children were a sign of God's reward. They were a sign of God's blessing. They were a badge of honor for a woman to have children, especially in that culture. And here you have it, she's righteous, she's blameless. You would expect that she would have had 29 of them. But instead, she's faced in a situation where she's barren. Which means there's nothing she can do about her situation. No book she can read. No diet she can hold to. No program she can fall upon. Barren is barren. Helpless and hopeless. Now we need to understand, Luke is not saying... That her childlessness, her barrenness is a result of her sin. That's not what's being said at all here. They were obedient to God's command. They walked in the statutes and commandments of the Lord. So what is Luke emphasizing? He's wanting us to enter into imagining exactly how this couple must have felt. Their disillusionment. Their struggling. Their wrestling. Their questioning. The self-doubt they must have have felt. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul, and have you ever faced times in your life where you felt that you were facing a dark night of the soul, where there truly was nowhere to turn, when you weren't sure what God was up to, when yes, maybe you wanted to trust him, but you couldn't find him, where he was. This was their situation, And verse 8 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. So I want you to notice something else that was going on. In the ministry in the temple and what was going on, before the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice... Incense was offered on the altar of incense, which was inside the shrine. The various daily duties were apportioned to the priests by lot. In view of the large number of priests, historians and scholars tell us that there were maybe approximately 18,000 priests at this time. No priest was permitted to offer incense more than once in his lifetime. So in other words, what's going on here is, in Zechariah's career life as a priest, this is his moment. This is his time. His once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, his career is taking off. The high point of his priestly career is now while his family and his personal life is struggling. He's going through the high point in his career, and yet he's falling to pieces, he and his wife, because of his personal struggle. And it's in this time That God breaks in through the witness of his angel, Gabriel. And you have to understand what the word angel actually means in the Greek. It's the word that means messenger. Angels were sent to do God's bidding, to minister in God's name. And so here we are at a time when Zechariah and Elizabeth are struggling immensely personally, wrestling. And yet Zechariah is being blessed and they're walking with God. How out of the box is the fact that God would intervene at this time and in this way in this life-changing way. And what does that teach us about hope? Hope comes at the most unexpected times. This is a struggle for us who like everything in the box. It's a struggle for us to control people who want everything neat and orderly and shirts lined up neatly and socks not in a Struggle for people like Jeff struggle for people who are black and white in their thinking, struggle for people because this is a very out-of-the-box God comes, guess what? God comes when he wants to. It's part of the prerogative of the sovereignty of God. That God is God and we're not. And he comes in out-of-the-box, unexpected times and unexpected ways. That's the first part that we learn about the unfolding of hope. But stay with me, follow with me. Next we learn how out of this world, how supernatural this hope is. Commentators teach us that the out of this worldness, if that can be a word, of this passage is seen in the way, the style of how Luke records and writes his narrative. Because remember I shared with you, and part of the reason I gave you some of this background is who was Luke's primary audience? He was writing to pagan Gentiles. The world of the cultured paganism of Hellenistic Greek and ancient Rome. And what is he telling them about? He's telling them about wild predictions and angels and miracles and things that would come much more out of the Jewish worldview. One commentator put it there is something remote, even legendary about this narrative. It has the general tone of a rich and resonant fairy tale. Once upon a time there were two old people, a man and his wife. And another writer calls this passage exotic, meaning outside the normal experience of the readers Luke has in mind. Why does Luke write in this kind of style? Why is he stretching our minds, our hearts, our imagination, our affections in this way? Why is he writing in a style that is so otherworldly? Because it reflects the character of the gospel. Which is out of this world supernatural. The gospel without the supernatural there is no gospel. The gospel is out of this world. It is heaven breaking into earth. It is not earth reaching up to heaven. You can't reach up to God. It's God coming down with you. What is the good news of Christmas? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which doesn't mean us with God, it means God with us. The entire character, and isn't it amazing in the word of God, that God even makes his genre and his narrative and his writing style reflective of the truth he is communicating. You look with me at verse 12. Zechariah is troubled when he sees the angel and fear falls upon him and the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. His reaction to the angel is exactly what we should expect. It's consistent with the typical reaction to the angels in the scriptures. Not like angels we see in much of our western artwork, I'm afraid. I don't want to criticize some of the artwork, but I think it's the famous painting by Raphael that has the two angels sitting there. So that's not the usual reaction you'd have. The usual angels in scripture in scripture evoke this amazing sense of fear, terror, otherness, and just like you see here in Zechariah, it's time to fall on your face because the supernatural has broken in. And I want you to notice something else with me. At the supernatural aspect of the gospel. I mentioned earlier how there's four incidents leading up to the birth of Jesus. And in all four, we've got this, at key junctures, acknowledgement of the supernatural. In verse 15, Zechariah's son, who is to be John the Baptist, is filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 35, Mary's son is to be born by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, Elizabeth greets Mary with a cry inspired by the Holy Spirit, and in verse 67, Zechariah, when he's finally able to speak again, celebrates John's birth with a prophecy in the Holy Spirit. What is the point that Luke is making? The point of the Holy Spirit is the glory of God coming to us and overshadowing us, just like in the Old Testament. When the tabernacle and the temple meant the presence of God, it pointed to the presence of God, dwelling, tabernacling, templing, again, if that is a word, with the people. God is going to live with man. No longer will their dominions and realms be separate. But as one commentator put it, the point Luke is making is this here is another world breaking into this one. The power and reality of the age to come is breaking into this present historical age. And that means the hope of God's people is not how your life goes in the present. But the hope of God's people is a miraculous breaking in from heaven. And that's what Christmas is. Heaven has broken in to earth. And that's, as we live in the in-between ages, what gives you hope for the future. You can look back and say heaven is broken in. Of course it's going to break in again in the future. And the practical application of this, biblical hope is people who live out the reality and certainty of the breaking in of the world. Heaven. That gives us a willingness to dream, a willingness to risk, a willingness to envision a future that's different from our present. The willingness to work for the restoration of shalom and flourishing, bearing witness to the glory of God who alone gets all of the glory. Biblical hope is not only out of the box, it's out of this world. And lastly, it's out of the ordinary. Verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Notice John the Baptist is actually called great, and it's the nature of his greatness that points to just how, out of the ordinary, John is. After talking about he must not drink wine or strong drink, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Why is John so great? And why is John so out of the ordinary? Because he's so other centered. He will make ready a people prepared not for himself, but for the Lord. See, John's greatness, the greatness ascribed to him, is an indication and points to the utter superior greatness that will be ascribed to Jesus. See, biblical greatness is possible, but here's what biblical greatness is. It's never to be great in oneself. Biblical greatness always points to another. It's always saying, look away from me, look away from me, look away from me, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Which begs the question, is your life pointing to yourself, or is your life pointing others to Christ? Does your life, how you give praise, how you give testimony, how you relate, how you handle suffering, how you handle doubt, does your life point to yourself, or does your life point to Jesus one of my favorite books is a book written by a fellow PCA pastor named Scotty Smith. who pastored a church in Franklin, Tennessee. And the book's called The Reign of Grace. And in the book, he dedicates it to a dear friend of his, a fellow elder in the church, a man by the name of Grant Cunningham, who had, while Scotty was writing the book, died at the age of 37 from a head injury he suffered playing soccer. Scotty writes that Grant was a living affirmation of this great truth. That there is no limit to what God can do for the man or woman who does not care, who gets the credit. John's greatness, his role is described specifically that of a second Elijah, whose task is one of preparation, not fulfillment, preparation for God's visitation of his people. The greatness of the herald of this mighty event is foreshadowed by his wondrous birth, which indicates. That God has a rich destiny for him, a rich death destiny that includes imprisonment, betrayal, rejection, and beheading at the hands of Herod. John is great because he points to another. In the fourth gospel, the evangelist John records these words of John the Baptist. He says To this John replied A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify what I said. I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And It is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Does that sound ordinary to you? That's not what we see typically in our lives, in our relationships, in our ministries, in our churches. To live our life seeking someone else to get all the credit all the time, to make sure the focus is completely on him, what he wants, his agenda, his purpose, his values, his way of relating. Or are we more about ourselves? And how can we be more about Jesus? To not just say, not just profess. He must become greater and I must become less. But to actually live it out. I think the key is to understand what the Spirit is about. Because if you notice, and I know I'm only preaching from one of these narratives this morning. And all four of these narratives, what they have in common is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus told us specifically in John chapter 16, verse 14. When he said, he, meaning the Spirit, will bring glory To me, for he will take what is mine and make it known to you. The Spirit lives for the greatness of Jesus. The Spirit, we're talking members of the Trinity, live for saying, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he great? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he majestic? And the very specific way he does this is by illuminating and showing and helping you remember and bringing to believers' hearts wonders. Of all that Jesus has done for you, He's saying, "Look at how much it cost Jesus to move heaven and earth not to lose you. Look at what Jesus doing—losing His family, losing His father, so you could have a family and be brought in, being crucified outside the camp, being mocked and scorned and helped and ridicule and contempt, so you will never experience shame. He brought you in and forgive you, so that you would never have guilt." He's justified you and declared you righteous so you never have to fear condemnation. He's indwelt you with the Spirit so you would never be alone. And he's given you an inheritance and the meek inherit what? The very earth! Your inheritance is this globe! And the Holy Spirit makes you great by showing you the greatness of Jesus so that your life can reflect. He must increase. And as he increases, he Do you want to live this kind of hope that's out of the box, that's out of this world, and that's out of the ordinary? Be consumed. Oh, friends, quit being satisfied with your spiritual life. I hope and I pray you have some holy discontent about the level, for all of us, every single one of us, while we're being sanctified, the level to which we behold and apprehend the greatness of Jesus the number one thing we need in life is to come and behold him. Born the king of angels. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that we would behold Jesus and be consumed more and more with his glory. That he would become greater and we would become less. That he would increase and that we would decrease. Father, I pray this, and I pray that as that come, we might bear the fruit of hope in our life. Hope, which, as Dan Allender wrote, is the dream of shalom. The anticipation, it's the anticipation of something that has not been realized to its fullness yet. We see so much brokenness and so much hurt, but it's the anticipation of joy that would course through us and prompt us to rise and rebuild who envision and risk for what is not yet. I pray that you would make us a people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.